recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today I have Sword Brethren with me. I have a few comments first, but today I have Sword Brethren with me, and, and, and he's basically going to carry the ball for this series because I haven't even read this document yet. I'm sorry, I just haven't had the time, but he wanted to cover this, and, and I decided to, um, to do what he wanted, and, and we're going to discuss a Mark Weber document entitled President Roosevelt's Campaign to Incite War in Europe, the Secret Polish Documents. Now, now the, um, the centerpiece of the article, I know, is the Pataki reports from Count Jerzy Pataki, a Polish ambassador before the war. And, and I, I have a caveat first, and that's about Mark Weber. And, you know, in, in the revisionist circles, it, it's not, you know, it's an area of interest to me, but it's certainly, and I've written a couple of things that could be deemed revisionist in, in pertaining to the Second World War. Not, nothing major, believe me. There's a few things on a Mein Kampf site. But, but um, I, I defer to Carolyn Yeager a lot. I, I mean, we've used her articles in, in, our, in our series back a couple of years ago on, on um, Operation Valkyrie, and, and Carolyn does the research that she does. She does pretty well, and she's pretty objective. And um, I have to cite a Carolyn Yeager article at carolynyeager.net. Mark Weber says millions of Jews lost their lives because of Nazi policies. And if anybody just wants to go to carolynyeager.net and search um, the name Weber, W-E-B-E-R, in the internal search engine, it'll come up pretty, pretty easily with this article. It, it's, um, I'm only going to state, uh, I'm only going to cite a few of, of Carolyn's statements where she says, Mark Weber, director of Institute of Historical Review, ended his radio show, The Mark Weber Report, on April 25, 2012, by saying, it cannot be disputed, and she puts that in quotes, and, and she gives the citation here, and she gives a link to that, to that report, right? It cannot be disputed that millions of Jews were forced from their homes, millions lost their lives. And Carolyn's article goes on to heavily criticize Mark Weber for that, while she also does recognize the value in some of Mark Weber's past work. I don't know why Mark Weber would make a statement like that. I don't follow the man's work. I read some of his early work in issues of the Institute for Historical Reviews um, in, in, in their publications, and, and I appreciated some of his early work. However, I don't understand why he would suddenly make a, what, what seems to me to be a 180-degree turn and, and start renouncing revisionism. And I know from speaking with Carolyn that he's renouncing the value of Holocaust revisionism. And um, I, I, I can only say that well, something has changed Mark Weber, and I'm sure it's not um, uh, the pursuit of further truth. Let's put it that way. The article that we're about to present is um, it is I I would consider it a good article. I I haven't really read it, but I've read of it already. And David Irving has on his website a recommendation to this very article, not that I totally trust David Irving either. I mean, some of David Irving's attitudes and, and um, statements and comments are, are very Anglophilic and, and um, seem to support a, a lot of the standard paradigms 
concerning the Second World War, which we can show today are simply wrong. But, but David Irving is a decent historical researcher and does reference and recommend this paper from Mark Weber that we're about to read. Now, this paper from Mark Weber is dated 1982. And, and That's before I, he went I, crazy. I, yeah, yeah, right. It's before he made his sudden left turn. It's a 30-year-old paper, and, and I, I, would, I, I would think that his early research was a little better than the path that Carolyn has pointed out that he's producing lately. We would think uh, that with age, people are supposed to improve the quality of their work as they learn more. Maybe they make a few corrections, but for someone to spend his entire career saying the Holocaust, as we understand it, as the mainstream teaches it, did not happen, and now he's just done a complete 180, and he's saying, oh, it happened and millions of Jews died. Someone's pulling his strings, and there, there's obviously someone's dangling a carrot in front of him or shaking a stick at him. Something's going on. Well, well, right. To me, it seems that Mark Weber is simply sold out to the world. I, I, I mean, that's my personal opinion, and, and I'm not afraid to pronounce it here. David Irving comments, and, and he's talking about the Pataki Papers in a particular dispatch, just to give us some background on this. We, we've discussed the Pataki Papers in podcasts before. This 1939 dispatch by the Polish ambassador is notorious. The Germans published it in a white book after they captured it, in Warsaw files in 1939, Pataki indignantly called it a fake when challenged by Bernard Baruch on its anti-Semitism. Baruch's letter and the reply are in his papers at Princeton. And, and this is Irving speaking, right? But I also found the carbon copy of the original in Pataki's papers in the Hoover Library. So, so that infers that the paper is not a fake and it's indeed genuine. And Pataki later basically had had denied his own work, right? And, and that's where that that's at fpp.co.uk. That's David Irving's website. And right below that comment, addressing the legitimacy of the papers, Irving says, "For more about this, see Mark Weber's essay." and the essay which we are about to present, President Roosevelt's Campaign to Incite War in Europe, The Secret Polish Documents, Journal of Historical Review, summer of 1983. And um, the, the main so-called anti-Semitic quote which, which Irving features in, in his own write-up on this is, um, uh, on Pataki's papers is, and I quote, Propaganda here is entirely, Jew in, entirely in Jewish hands. Their propaganda is so effective that people here have no real knowledge of the true state of affairs in Europe. Polish Ambassador Pataki, Washington, reporting to Warsaw in 1939. Now, we know that today to be entirely true. The American people were, that, that, well, to this day, they received their education concerning world affairs, concerning politics, concerning social issues, and, and everything else of import, they received their education from entirely Jewish sources. And, so, and it was true in 1939, and it's true today. Do we have any idea as to the true state of affairs in Greece or in Iran or in, say, France or Spain with the riots and the uprisings and the, the looting and the pillaging? We don't know what's going on in the world for the most part, do we? I mean, we're seeing it through a Jewish lens. It's all filtered. 
Well, well it, it's not even filtered. It's just blocked out. I, I mean, most Americans are absolutely ignorant of the true state of affairs in, in, in anywhere else in the world, even in America. They barely know what's going on three towns over. The, the the news is entirely dumbed down and and it's it, it's dumbed down and it's reduced to a, a a series of sound bites that that are designed to steer the general masses in one direction or another. Hmm. That's it. That that's what the news is. Not none of it's. Uh, I mean, there is no real social or political analysis on, on any television news program or in any newspaper that I've seen. And I, I read the Wall Street Journal for 15 years. I read the New York Times. Most of it's just, um, I, I don't want to call it left-wing. The entire media and the entire political spectrum is left-wing. Yet, you know, when it's mainstream equals left-wing, right? I, I mean, when you say the word mainstream, just think Bolshevik or Marxist. And it, it's all... It, it's all just Marxist propaganda, neo-Marxist propaganda, if I have to use a better term. Okay, I was on Carolyn Yeager's program this afternoon for an hour, and, and uh, we had a good time. And, and the only criticism I had on the program is that we allowed ourselves to get bogged down in, in for about 10 minutes in, in a, um, a discussion over whether or not atheism had any moral standing to support racism and defend the right, the, the white race. And, and of course, um, Carolyn thinks that it, it's possible. And, and I think that it's incredible and, and we're going to continue to differ on that. That's okay. It's, it, it's a minor difference and we shouldn't have got bogged down. In it. Aside from that, we had an excellent program. We had a good discussion uh, about the ADL and the need for, for, for white nationalists and, and, um, Identity Christians and, and everybody who, who has an interest in, in the defense or the preservation of our race and our civilization, our culture, to, to meet on some common ground and defend our rights against the, the, um, the treachery of the Jews, which is seen in the actions of, of the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center, and other such organizations. We have to, if white nationalism is going to survive, if white nationalism is going, and, and I include um, identity Christians as a large sector of what I would consider to be white nationalism, um, read the June editorial I wrote in the Saxon Messenger um, two months ago. It's a short editorial. It's entitled Christianity is Nationalism. And um, so, so I consider identity Christians a sector of white nationalism. And, I consider and we us the vanguard. We're the tip of the spear. I mean, well, we're there. Absolutely true. But, but a lot of identity Christians would separate themselves from white nationalism when actually, the, the, as Mark Downey has pointed out, originally white nationalism in, in America was not called white nationalism. It was called Christian patriotism. That they were called. They weren't called white nationalists. They were called Christian patriots, and and it was, um, uh, according to Mark, who's who's been in the, involved in the movement a long a lot longer than I have. According to him, men like David Duke and Don Black wanted to secularize Christian patriotism and broaden the umbrella and and pitch a bigger tent 
and and they started using the term white nationalist rather than Christian patriot. And now but, they want but, an even bigger tent, so they're watering down, you know, the definition of whiteness. Well, well, yeah, now gray and beige are okay, right? Now gray and beige are white, too. If, if you go to Stormfront, gray and beige are now white, yes, and that's, that, that's or, unfortunate. If you ask the BNP, it's okay to be an Indian, a Pakistani, a Jew. You can still join their party, and they'll, they'll um, sponsor you for office. Right. Well, well, my point this afternoon was that white nationalists, and, and I include Christian identists, have to defend themselves. We have to come up with ways to effectively assert our rights on the Internet and defend them against the Jew. And if that means um, supporting each other and forming org- organizations or, or associations in, in order to have a, a, at least the appearance of a larger voice, then, then so be it. That's probably what we should do. What we shouldn't um, formalize our associations beyond that, I, I would think, is a bad idea. We should we, we should remain a hundred million little pieces, but what we should also stand united against the the Jewish um, destruction of, of our rights to express ourselves. It's important. There has to be a way to do. These um, groups, the BNP, American Renaissance, groups that think we can reach an accommodation with the Jews, at the end of the day, the Jews do not accept that we have the right to exist. So there's no room to bargain, compromise. You you don't negotiate with evil. Light and darkness have no understanding. Well, well, absolutely, and that's why a Jew should never be a white nationalist. A, A white nationalist should never accept a Jew as a white nationalist. A Christian patriot should never accept a Jew as a Christian. And I'll point out that, that, that circus clown that calls himself Brother Nathaniel it is the perfect example. Well, and there's white nationalists, even in Christian identity circles, that, that, that love the work and, and, and cite the work and, and post the work of Henry Macau. Well, I mean, how do you negotiate Christian, and bargain with these people? If the Jews come along and say, we want to destroy Germany, Italy, and Austria, and they say, we'll be happy if we can destroy Germany. You keep Austria and Italy. And we say, okay, that's a good deal. Go ahead. No, we're, we're not bargaining away 80 million of our well, racial kin. There's no room for compromise. There's no discussion. We never be any compromise of evil, period. Christians should never compromise of evil, period. We should be, and, and I wrote in, in my editorial that Christianity is nationalism. We should seek to be the shining city on the hill and pull our white brethren towards us. And I mentioned this today on, on, on Carolyn's program, that, that we should espouse positive values, positive views, and, and things that edify our race. And in that manner, we would attract people to our ideas. And we can do that. Identity Christians can do that. Absolutely. And as far as compromise and negotiations, where that winds up, Gerald told me about how in the 50s and 60s they went after each southern state one at a time. So, you know, the South as a region didn't recognize it as an assault, and the governors never really got together and formed a united front. They said, oh, it's happening in they're, they're, they're busting segregation in, in Tennessee, or they're, they're doing sit-ins in North Carolina and South Carolina, or there's busing in Mississippi, and they, just, they saw it as, oh, that state's under attack, at least we're not under attack, or, oh, we have an, we have an agreement and an understanding, a gentleman's agreement with LBJ, that won't happen here. And then, boom, one state after another, they just fell like dominoes. 
So at the end of the day, an assault on one Christian patriot is an assault on all Christian patriots. Well, okay, I've given my caveats concerning Mark Weber. I, I, I can't. I can only conjecture why he's made a left turn suddenly in in, in the um what what I would consider to be the closing decade or, or decades of his career, or at least the the end period of his career. I mean, I know he's up in years. He's been around at, at least thirty thirty five years in, in in the revisionist movement, if I have to call it a movement. He, he's um. It's unfortunate that that he suddenly changed, ad- adopted the mainstream Jewish lies concerning the the, the Holocaust and National Socialist Germany. That's highly unfortunate because it's simply not true. And, and I don't care how much way the end his career. Well, well, right. It's it's sad. It really is sad. But that's what happened. And this paper is from the other end, from the beginning of his career when when um his, his work was evidently a lot better. And he spread the truth in that regard for who it offended. President Roosevelt's campaign to incite war in Europe, the secret Polish documents, Mark Weber, 1982. Major ceremonies were held in 1982 to mark the 100th anniversary of the birth of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. With the exceptions of Washington and Lincoln, he was glorified and eulogized as no other president in American history. Uh, of course, when the Jewish media is glorifying and eulogizing you, that, that's the first sign that the man is, is a devil, right? And, you know, I, I've looked at some numbers on a spreadsheet, and I found that if the GDP continued to grow 5% a year, which is typical healthy, normal GDP growth from 1929 onward, we would have hit about $236 billion in 1941, as it was or as it wound up being, we hit about 233, and that required about 90 billion in government spending. And if you look at it, Roosevelt deepened and prolonged the depression, and he caused the recession of 36. We never hear about this though. And ultimately, the U.S. did not fully get out of the depression until after World War II, when there was a housing demand and a construction boom, which you know caused a ripple effect throughout the economy because construction, housing, materials, wood—I mean, it just—it's everything. You know, homes and construction and labor. There's a lot that goes into it in terms of the logistics. The soldiers had saved up a lot of money. People didn't have a whole lot to buy because it was a war economy. So all that consumer spending injected into the economy in '46 through '48. That's what finally ended the Depression. Yet Roosevelt gets all this credit for running unconstitutional tax-and-spend government bailout programs that we're still feeling the effects of and paying for today. He started the government into this colossal octopus with a tentacle in every aspect of everybody's lives. Yet they hail him as a hero. In, in, in their view, though, he is a hero. He's the great American Bolshevik. Well, well that's because of the trans- transformation which occurred in the 1920s and 30s in this country where people began to substitute the government for God, right? The government became their God, right? They, they, they forsook the God, the, the Christian God, and the government became their God. And so, even even well, the government magnified their God, right? Even so-called conservatives like Newt Gingrich declared that FDR is the um, one of the greatest figures of the 20th century and that he brought us out of the Depression, and a statement like that can only come from someone who does not appreciate a true free market economy. I mean, if you believe in the Constitution and free markets, there's no way you can praise Roosevelt. Well, well, I, I don't really believe in free markets in 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 the term that 
in, in the way the term is used today either. I mean, the, the market's not free. No, no, the free market in America has never been free, right? Even conservative President Ronald Reagan is the biggest fraud of, of the free market economy right there, right? The President Ronald Reagan joined the chorus of applause. In early 1983, newspapers and television networks remembered the 50th anniversary of Roosevelt's inauguration with numerous laudatory tributes. And yet, with each passing year, more and more new evidence comes to light, which contradicts the glowing image of Roosevelt portrayed by the mass media and politicians. Well, well, the mass media is doing the will of the Jew in society, right? It's a Jewish mass media. Roosevelt's their hero because he, he, he allied himself with, with the Jewish Bolshevik regime in the Soviet Union to destroy Christian Germany, right? Deliver Basically. the world to them on a silver platter. Much has already been written about Roosevelt's campaign of deception and outright lies in getting the United States to intervene in the Second World War prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. Let me just say that that would have never been possible without a whole cadre of American military officers who were basically cowards and traitors. Roosevelt's aid to Britain and the Soviet Union in violation of American neutrality and international law, his acts of war against Germany in the Atlantic in an effort to provoke a German declaration of war against the United States, his authorization of a vast dirty tricks campaign against U.S. citizens by British intelligence agents in violation of the Constitution, and his provocations and ultimatums against Japan, which brought the attack against Pearl Harbor, all this is extensively documented and reasonably well-known. Not so well-known is the story of Roosevelt's enormous responsibility for the outbreak of the Second World War itself. This essay focuses on Roosevelt's secret campaign to provoke war in Europe prior to the outbreak of hostilities in September 1939. It deals particularly with his efforts to pressure Britain, France, and Poland into war against Germany in 1938 and 39, what which only makes sense because Roosevelt was basically a tool of the Northeast Jewish establishment. Bernard Baruch, Samuel Untermeyer, Felix Frankfurter. Why wouldn't he orchestrate a war against Christian Germany? Because Samuel Untermeyer and the Northeast Jewish establishment wanted to destroy Adolf Hitler's Germany. Well, you know, with the, uh, with the attack on Pearl Harbor, a code breaker, an army cryptanalyst, William Friedman, he helped break the Japanese diplomatic code, and he said to his wife repeatedly, they knew, they knew, they knew. And a British double agent, Dusko Popov, got an incomplete account of the attack while aboard a tramp steamer, and he assumed that the Americans had been ready and were waiting because he had given the FBI the Japanese plans for the air raid several days in advance at least. And he recalled that when he heard about the attack, he was very proud that he had been able to give warning to the Americans. Oh, it says four months in advance. And he even jumped up and exclaimed, what a reception the Japs must have had. And he was shocked when he um, read the newspapers that the fleet had been caught unprepared and had been savaged. He expected that they would have been waiting and would have shot down basically all the Japanese aircraft. Franklin Roosevelt not only criminally involved America in a war which had already engulfed Europe, he bears a grave responsibility before history for the outbreak of the most destructive war of all time. This paper relies heavily on a little-known collection of secret 
Polish documents which fell into German hands when Warsaw was captured in September 1939. These documents clearly establish Roosevelt's crucial role in bringing on the Second World War. They also reveal the forces behind the president which pushed for the war. Probably some of those gentlemen I just mentioned. While a few historians have quoted sentences and even paragraphs from these documents, their importance has not been fully appreciated. There are three reasons for this, I believe, the words of Mark Weber. First, for many years, their authenticity was not indisputably established. Second, a complete collection of the documents has not been available in English. And third, the translation of those documents, which has been available in English now, is deficient and unacceptably bad. When the Germans took Warsaw in late September 1939, they seized a massive documents from the Polish Foreign Ministry of Affairs. I'm sorry, the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In a letter of April 8, 1983, Dr. Karl Otto Braun of Munich informed me that the documents were captured by an SS brigade led by Freiherr von Kunzberg whom Braun knew personally. In a surprise attack, the brigade captured the center of Warsaw ahead of the regular German. Von Kunzberg told Braun that his men took control of the Polish foreign ministry, just as ministry officials were in the process of burning dis incriminating documents. Dr. Braun was an official of the German foreign office between 1938 and 1945. The German Foreign Office chose Hans Adolf von Moltke, formerly the Reich's ambassador in Warsaw, to head a special archive commission to examine the collection and sort out those documents which might be suitable for publication. At the end of March 1940, 16 of these were published in book form under the title Polish Documents on the Prehistory of the War. The Foreign Office edition was subtitled German White Book Number three, the book was immediately published in various foreign language editions in Berlin and some other European capitals. An American edition was published in New York by Howell, Howell Soskin and Company as the German White Paper. Historian C. Hartley Grattan contributed a remarkably cautious and reserved foreword. The translation of the documents for the U.S. White Paper edition was inexcusably bad. Whole sentences and parts of sentences were missing and portions were grossly mistranslated. H. Keith Thompson explained to me why this was so during a conversation on the 22nd of March, 1983, and in a letter of May 13th. A poor first English draft, a poor first draft English language translation had been prepared in Berlin and sent to America. It was given to George Sylvester Weirich, a prominent pro-German American publicist and literary advisor to the German Library of Information in New York City. Thompson knew Weirich intimately and served as his chief aide and rewriter. Weirich had hurriedly drafted the translation from Berlin. Do I know that name from the from the sedition trials? Which name? I think. V-I-R-E-C-K, Virick, George I'm Virick. reading about him. He was a German-American poet, writer, and propagandist. Wiki says that his father was a Marxist socialist who had joined a socialist movement in 1896. He was in the U.S. Let's see. He founded two publications, one called The International and the other called The Fatherland. 
during World War One. He advocated for Germany. He conducted an interview with Hitler in 23. And then in 1941, he was indicted in the U.S. for violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act when he set up his publishing house, Flanders House, Flanders Hall, in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. He was convicted in 42 for failure to register with the U.S. Department of State as a Nazi agent and imprisoned from 42 to 47 when he was released. Okay. I, I thought it was something like that. I thought it may have been the sedition trials, but yeah. I, I was close. Weirich had hurriedly redrafted the translation from Berlin into more readable prose, but without any opportunity of comparing it to the original Polish text, which he could not read in any, in any case, or even the official German language version. And making stylistic changes for the sake of readability, the meaning of the original documents was thereby inadvertently distorted. The matter was also discussed at a small dinner for Lawrence Dennis, who was an, a victim of the sedition trials, hosted by Thompson at Virick's apartment in the Hotel Belclair in New York City in 1956. Virick explained that he had been a highly paid literary consultant to the German government responsible for the propaganda effect of publications and could not be concerned with the translation groundwork normally done by clerks. In other words, he didn't care about the truth. He was creating propaganda, right? Even the most careful translation of complicated documents is apt to distort the original meaning, and literary editing is certain to do so, Byrick said. Thompson agreed with that view. In preparing, the, in preparing the English language text for this essay, I have carefully examined the official German translation and various other translations and compared them with facsimiles of the original Polish documents. In the original sure. documents, do you think that the Soviets have probably destroyed those by now? Well, well no. We read that David Irving had actually found a, a copy of, of at least some of them in, in Count Jersey Pataki's papers. Those right? are only some of them, right? I mean, the, the complete records, though? Well, well, I had to research that, right? All right. Media sensation. The German government considered the captured Polish documents to be of tremendous importance. On Friday, 29 March, the Reich's Ministry of Propaganda confidentially informed the daily press of the, of the reason for releasing the documents. These extraordinary documents, which may be published beginning with the first edition on Saturday, will create a first-class political sensation, since they, in fact, prove the degree of America's responsibility for the outbreak of the present war. America's responsibility must not, of course, be stressed in commentaries. The documents must be left to speak for themselves, and they speak clearly enough. The Ministry of Propaganda specifically asks that sufficient space be reserved for the publication of these documents, which is of supreme importance to the Reich and the German people. We inform you in confidence that the purpose of publishing these documents is to strengthen the American isolationists and to place Roosevelt in an untenable position, especially in view of the fact that he is standing for re-election. It is, however, not at all necessary for us to point to Roosevelt's responsibility. His enemies in America will take care of that. The German Foreign Office made the documents public on Friday, 29 March 1940. In Berlin, Journalists from around the world, including the United States, were given facsimile copies of the original Polish documents and translations in German. Journalists were permitted to examine the original documents themselves, along with an enormous pile of other documents from the Polish Foreign Ministry. The release of the documents was an international media sensation. American newspapers gave the story large front-page headline coverage, 
and published lengthy excerpts from the documents, but the impact was much less than the German government had hoped for. Leading American government officials wasted no time in vehemently denouncing the documents as not authentic. Secretary of State Cordell Hall said, I must say most emphatically that neither I nor any of my associates in the Department of State have ever heard of any such conversations as those alleged, nor do we give them the slightest credence. The statements alleged have not represented in any way, at any time, the thought or the policy of the American government. William Bullitt, the U.S. Ambassador to Paris, who was particularly incriminated by the documents, announced, I have never made to anyone the statements attributed to me. And Count Jerzy Pataki, the Polish ambassador in Washington, whose confidential reports to Warsaw were the most revealing, declared, I deny the allegations attributed to my reports. I never had any conversations with Ambassador Bullitt on America's participation in war. These categorical public denials by the highest officials had the effect of almost completely undercutting the anticipated impact of the documents. It must be remembered that this was several decades before the experiences of the Vietnam War and Watergate had taught another generation of Americans to be highly skeptical of such official denials. In 1940, the vast majority of the American people trusted their political leaders to tell them the truth. And that, that is pretty accurate there, isn't it, Bill, that in 1940 they could basically say it's not raining, even though you can look outside and see rain. Oh, it must not be raining. My eyes are playing tricks on me. <laughs> what would they expect? Well, I mean, what, what did people expect that these guys were going to say, okay, you, you, you caught us red-handed, we're, we're guilty, we violated the law and the Constitution and tried to drag America into a world war? Well, well, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, they could get away with just about anything they, that they wanted to then and now, right? The greatest generation and, of dudes. And every after, generation since. After all, if the documents made public to the world by the German government were in fact authentic and genuine, it would mean that the great leaders of the American democracy, the great leader of the American democracy, was a man who lied to his own people, broke his own country's laws, while the German government told the truth. To accept that would be quite a lot to expect of any nation, but especially of the trusting American people, public. Now, now let me just say that Cordell Hall, he, he had a lot riding on, on the validity of these documents. He had to denounce these documents, right? Will, William Bullitt the same way. William Bullitt was the guy that in 1935 in Poland guaranteed Poland the defense of Poland. On behalf of the Roosevelt administration, he guaranteed the defense of Poland against a, a, a German invasion, right? I mean, that's all the way back in 1935. And um, we discussed that back when, when we um, talked about America's entry into the, into, World War, in, into the Second World War. And when we talked about Alger Hiss, we discussed William Bullitt. And he, he was the... Um, he was the U.S. ambassador to Moscow at the time when at the funeral of um, Joseph Pilsudski, he, he guaranteed the Poles would have protection against the German invasion, right? And, and that, helped, um, that helped to steal Polish resolve in actually agitating a war against Germany but by, um, by oppressing and, and antagonizing and... and um, persecuting German German people of German blood in Polish borders, right? Absolutely. It emboldened the Poles. It yes. allowed them to adopt a hardline position when they could have reached an understanding with the Germans. Absolutely. Comment from oh. Capitol Hill generally echoed the official government view. Senator Kay Pittman, 
the Democratic chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, called the documents unmitigated falsehood designed to create dissension in the United States. Senator Claude Papert, Democrat of Florida, declared it's German propaganda and shouldn't affect our policies in the least. It's interesting to note that the, the Democrats today, the, the self-styled progressives, they like to see themselves as peaceful, diplomatic people, but the Democratic Party's led the charge for basically every war this country's ever been in. Am I mistaken, or is that how you see it too, Bill? Well, well that was true probably through the, um, through the Vietnam War. That was true through the Vietnam War. It's not true the last 20 years. It was now true. both parties are warmongering parties. Well, well, since the Carter administration, I think the, um, the Republicans have been used. The, the Jewish hawks have used the Republican Party since the, since the, um, probably since the Carter administration. But it was still on, on Clinton's watch that we um, annihilated the Serbs in Bosnia and hit them again in Kosovo to make way for the Albanian terrorists to take over. So, well, well right, but and, and any intelligent American, and any, uh, I mean, I'm not talking about the, the people that listen to my podcast, the people that read our blogs, uh, any intelligent American that has observed the last four years and, and all of the Obama campaign promises leading into his election, if you actually go back and look at them, we should have been out of Afghanistan three and a half years ago. We should have been out of Iraq three and a half years ago. Any intelligent American should be able to see that we really only have one party, right? Mm -hmm. And and still, it's incredible how blind people are. It, it, It really is. And I know that actually only a small percentage of Americans understand that. But it's sad. It's a sad state of affairs. I mean, I have... But some of my own cousins up here are riding around with Romney bumper stickers and Romney signs on their cars right now. It, it's incredible the, how stupid uh, it, It's anti- absolutely incredible. So-called anti-war movement is disingenuous and insincere. They were vehemently against Iraq and Afghanistan in 07 and 08. Then Obama comes in and all of a sudden all the protests are gone. You don't see anybody protesting because now it's a democratic war. Well, well, right. It, it's the, um, the the Jewish treachery behind the scenes that funded and agitated the people to protest in the first place. When the funding dries up, the protesters disappear. It's real simple. It's real simple that the entire political process in this, this entire country is orchestrated 100% by the Jewish bankers, the media, and, and other powers that be. Absolutely. Senator Claude Pepper, Democrat of Florida, declared it is German propaganda and shouldn't affect our policies in the least. Only a few were not impressed with the official denials. Representative Hamilton Fish of New York, the ranking Republican member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, called for a congressional investigation and declared in a radio address, if these charges were true, it would constitute a treasonable act if President Roosevelt has entered into secret understandings or commitments with foreign governments to involve us in war, he should be impeached. American newspapers stressed the high-level denials in reporting the release of the documents. The New York Times headline read, U.S. brands as false Nazi documents charging we fostered war in Europe and promised to join allies if needed. The Baltimore Sun headlined, Nazi documents laying war blame on U.S. are assailed in Washington. Although the book of Polish documents was labeled first series, no further volumes ever appeared. From time to time, the German government would make public additional documents from the Polish archives. These were published in book form in 1943, 
along with numerous other documents captured by the Germans from the French Foreign Ministry and other European archives under the title Roosevelt's Weg in den Krieg, Geheim Dokument zur Kriegspolitik des Präsidenten der Vernagenten Staaten, Roosevelt's Way into War, Secret Documents on the War Policy of the President of the United States. An important unanswered question is, where are the original Polish documents today? To repeat, where are the original Polish documents today? Unless they were destroyed in the conflagration of the war, they presumably fell into either American or Soviet hands in 1945. In view of recent U.S. governmental policy on secret archival material, it is very unlikely that they would still be secret today if they had been acquired by the United States. My guess is that if they were not destroyed, they are now either in Moscow or at the East German Central State Archives in Potsdam. And, of course, Mr. Weber's writing in 1982, and there is no more East Germany, and there is no more East German Central Archive in Potsdam, and for that matter, there's no more Soviet government, officially anyway. It is particularly important to keep in mind that these secret reports were written by top-level Polish ambassadors, that is, by men who, though not at all friendly to Germany, nonetheless understood the realities of European politics far better than those who made policy in the United States. Well, well, let me just say that David, that, that, um, David Irving does state on his website that he has examined and, and found support for um, Pataki's alleged anti-Semitism. He's found the, the, the documents that were in question illustrating his anti-Jewish position, right? That the, um, the the David Irving comments on his website claim that he has seen at least um, a, a good portion of Count Jersey Pataki's papers in the Hoover Library, and, and they're not these official reports, but they are papers of one of the Polish ambassadors in question, and, and the most famous one, you know, who's, who, who is mentioned in the reports. Who's mentioned being associated with the reports is Pataki, right? For example, the Polish ambassadors realized that behind all their rhetoric about democracy and human rights and expressions of love for the United States, the Jews who agitated for war against Germany were actually doing nothing other than ruthlessly furthering their own purely sectarian interests. Many centuries of experience in living closely with the Jews had made the Poles far more aware than most nationalities of the special character of this people. And there's an old Polish proverb, the Jew cries out in pain as he strikes you. The Poles viewed the Munich settlement of 1938 very differently than did Roosevelt and his circle. The president bitterly attacked the Munich Agreement, which gave self-determination to the three and a half million Germans of Czechoslovakia and settled a major European crisis as a shameful and humiliating capitulation to German blackmail. Although wary of German might, the Polish government supported the Munich Agreement in part because a small Polish territory, which had been part of Czechoslovakia against the wishes of its inhabitants, was united with Poland as a result of the settlement. So in keeping with American policy, Germans who have lived on this soil for 1,500 years they don't get self-determination, but Albanians who illegally move into Kosovo against the wishes of the Serbs living there and then begin attacking the Serbs, provoking them into retaliating and defending themselves, they get self-determination and they can vote the Serbs out. 
in American well, well, sports. The right determination is decided by Jewish bankers, right? Self-determination as long as you're going to support them. The Polish envoys held that the makers of American foreign policy in something approaching held the, the makers of American foreign policy in something approaching contempt. President Roosevelt was considered a master who knew how to mold American public opinion. That doesn't sound right. Hello? Yes. Okay, sorry. The Polish envoys held the makers of American foreign policy in something approaching contempt. President Roosevelt was considered a master political artist who knew how to mold American public opinion, but very little about the true state of affairs in Europe. Now, now was Roosevelt a master political artist, or did the media make Roosevelt look like a master political artist because the Jewish bankers and the Jewish establishment in in New York and New England wanted Roosevelt to be the president? He wasn't all that savvy. He was basically an amateur who was surrounded by elite Jews who were well-connected. Right. And he had people, you know, professional diplomats like Cordell Hall, and he had professional politicians that were just giving him advice, and he had a a bunch of Soviet agents there to guide us in. What, what, what we covered that um Harry Hopkins. Well, Harry well, look at the media today. Look at the media. Look at how they that they cram down on the, the throats of the American people that a boob like Bill Clinton is a genius or an idiot like Barack Obama is a genius. And, and the media has the average American believing this, right? Because they want to, these people to be perceived in that fashion. But when it comes to a Republican, someone that. He's supposed to play the role of Christian conservative. He's a boob and an idiot who can't tie his own shoes. Where Obama doesn't even know how many states our country has. He thought it was, what, 57? Right. Roosevelt was not a master political artist. He he was just a flunky for the New York bankers. It's it's pretty clear. And they ran cover for him and everything. They they didn't even let the people know that he he um he, he had lost the use of his legs. I mean, right? That would have been an issue back then, right? And I'm sure they held they, they held that over him, didn't they? And his extramarital affairs. Yes, no doubt. So they had a lot of dirt on him. He was going to play ball. Well, the same thing with Woodrow Wilson, right? But but both men were were um were vain and arrogant seekers of their own glorification. Neither of them obtained the office of president through their own merits. No. No, they were compromised and they were used and they were put in that position so that, so that they could achieve certain tasks which the, 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 um, the Jewish establishment wanted them to achieve. It, it's pretty clear. As Go on. As Poland's ambassador to Washington emphasized in his reports to Warsaw, Roosevelt pushed America into war in order to distract attention from his failures as president in domestic policy. And, of course, there's also the fact that Roosevelt probably has some Jews in the woodpile and he hates Germans, and he's going to get on board with a war that helps destroy Christian Europe and hand it over to his Soviet friends, since he's taking advice from what was it, um, Harry Hopkins, Harry Dexter White, and Alger Hiss, and they're all Soviet agents. They might as well just got off the boat from, you know, Moscow. Some of the more convincing um, research I've seen ha- has him having Jewish ancestry on the Delano side. He's certainly Don't. no friend of ours, though. I mean, if he's not a Jew, he missed an opportunity. 
It is beyond the scope of this paper to go into the complexities of German-Polish relations between 1933 and 1939 and the reasons for the German attack against Poland on dawn of the first day of September 1939. However, it should be noted that Poland had refused to even negotiate over self-determination for the German city of Danzig and the ethnic German minority in the so-called Polish corridor. Hitler felt compelled to resort to arms when he did in response to a growing Polish campaign of terror and dispossession against the one and a half million ethnic Germans under Polish rule. In my view, if ever a military action was justified, it was the German campaign against Poland in 1939. And we see today Americans calling for a, a intervention in the Sudan because of genocide and purges and terror and the um, erroneous and absolutely false reports of Serb atrocities against Albanians, and they supported a bombing. Yet we're, we're, we're supposed to believe that Hitler was just expected to sit back and watch as the Poles went wild and hacked a million and a half Germans to pieces. It's, it's absurd. So basically, when, when white people are the victims, intervention is wrong. You're supposed to use diplomacy. When non-whites are the victims or when they're the alleged victims, it's time to intervene and start dropping bombs. And I just wanted to say real quick about German-Polish relations between 1933 and 1939. Poland is looked at as a democracy if I'm not mistaken, though, since 1927, a military junta had been running Poland because the government had been toppled in a coup, and Poland was basically being run by um, a number of field marshals, some generals, and a few colonels. So Poland was not a democratic regime. It was an authoritarian, expansionist regime, and in order to distract the people from the fact that they had lost all their domestic liberties, they were rattling the saber and talking about a greater Poland, and they claimed that Poland would control all the way up to the Elbe River, that the um, odor was no longer sufficient, and that they were going to then push into the Baltic states, and they wanted to reestablish the great Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Do you remember the um, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth before the first partition of Poland? Right. So Poland it, basically it, was on a path for war. Right, it controlled a very good portion of Central Europe. I think in the 1600s, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was probably one of the, the largest nations in Europe, aside from the Habsburg holdings and Russia. And at the time, Germany had made an offer to Poland to enter into a defensive alliance, and they agreed that they would defend Poland against any threats, which, of course, anybody with an IQ of room temperature would read the Soviet Union, since that was the main threat Poland was faced with. And Britain and France were in no real position to send troops into Poland and defend them against anybody, so it would have been in Poland's best interests to work with Germany rather than against Germany because they had just fought a war with the Soviet Union not 15 years earlier, and the Soviets had basically made it known, we'll be back. The Soviets had lost a, a sizable chunk of land, and they weren't happy. So it, it was clear the Soviets were coming again. Th they would have been better served by siding with the Germans, but they shot themselves in the foot, didn't they? Well, absolutely. Poland's headstrong refusal to negotiate was made possible because of a fatal, fateful, blank check guarantee of military backing from Britain, a pledge that ultimately proved completely worthless to the hapless Poles. And I would say, of course, not only were the British not in a position to help, they never intended to help. Poland was the sacrificial lamb offered up on the altar of, you know, the war to get the um, war for international Jewry rolling. They, they didn't care what happened to the Poles. Considering the lightning swiftness of the victorious German campaign, it is difficult to realize today that the Polish government did not fear war with Germany. 
Poland's leaders foolishly believed that German might was only an illusion. They were convinced that their troops would occupy Berlin itself within a few weeks and add further German territories to an enlarged Polish state. It is also important to keep in mind that the purely localized conflict between Germany and Poland was only transformed into a Europe-wide conflagration by the British and French declarations of war against Germany. And as soon as Germany knocked Poland out of the war, they offered peace with Britain and France, but the British and French wouldn't listen. We've covered that, haven't we, Bill? Yes, we have. After the war, the Allied-appointed judges at the International Military Tribunal staged at Nuremberg refused to admit the Polish documents as evidence for the German defense. Had these pieces of evidence been admitted, the Nuremberg undertaking might have been less a victor's show trial and more a genuinely impartial court of international justice. Now, now that's kind of naive on, on Weber's part to, to even write that, right? Because Nuremberg was never set up to be a genuinely impartial court. No, it, it was a kangaroo court. They were there to denounce the Germans, make the Jews look like helpless, pathetic victims who need sympathy, mercy, kindness, compassion, a state in the Middle East, and then instill white guilt in people for decades to come. It, it was a show trial. Would you like to take the next bullet point? Authenticity, beyond doubt. There is now absolutely no question that the documents from the Polish Foreign Ministry in Warsaw made public by the German government are authentic, I'm sorry, genuine and authentic. Charles C. Canfield, professor of American diplomatic history at Georgetown University, considered them genuine, and he quotes, I had a long conversation with M. Lipsky, the Polish ambassador in Berlin, in the pre-war years, and he assured me that the documents in the German white paper are authentic, he wrote. Historian and sociologist Harry Elmer Barnes, the Barnes Review is named for him, confirmed this assessment. Both Professor Tansill and myself have independently established the thorough authenticity of these documents. In America's Second Crusade, William H. Chamberlain reported, quote, I have been privately informed by an extremely reliable source that Potocki, now residing in South America, confirmed the accuracy of the documents so far as he was concerned. More importantly, Edward Rosinski, the Polish ambassador in London from 1934 to 1945, confirmed the authenticity of the documents in his diary which was published in 1963 under the title In Allied London in his entry for the 20th of June, 1940. He wrote, The Germans published in April a white book containing documents from the archives of our Ministry of Foreign Affairs, consisting of reports from Pataki in Washington. Lukasiewicz in Paris, I'm sorry I butchered that name, Polish names are rough, Lukasiewicz in Paris and myself. I do not know where they found them since we were told that the archives had been destroyed. The documents are certainly genuine and the facsimiles show that for the most part the Germans got hold of originals and not merely copies. In this first series of documents I found three reports from this embassy two by myself, and the third signed by me but written by Bolinsky. I read them with some apprehension, 
but they contained nothing liable to compromise myself or the embassy or to impair relations with our British hosts. In 1970, their authenticity was reconfirmed with the publication of Diplomat in Paris, 1936 to 1939. This important work consists of the official papers and memoirs of Julius Lucas, Luke, I, I keep butchering this name, Lucas Siewicz, the former Polish ambassador to Paris who authored several of the secret diplomatic reports made public by the German government. The collection was edited by Wachlaw Jesuits, a former Polish diplomat and cabinet member and later Professor Emeritus of Wellesley and Ripon Colleges. Professor Jesuits, however the heck you pronounce that, (laughs) considered the documents made public by the Germans absolutely genuine. He quoted extensively from several of them. Mr. Tyler G. Kent has also vouched for the authenticity of the documents. He states that while working at the U.S. Embassy in London in 1939 and 1940, he saw copies of U.S. diplomatic messages in the files which corresponded to the Polish documents and which confirmed their accuracy. Two American diplomats who played especially crucial roles in the European crisis of 1938 to 1939 are often mentioned in the Polish documents. The first of these, I could have guessed, was William C. Bullitt. Although his official position was a U.S. ambassador to France, he was in reality much more than that. He was Roosevelt's super envoy and personal deputy in Europe, and, and we've read that same thing in sources such as Conservapedia. Like Roosevelt, Bullitt rose from the rich. He was born into an important Philadelphia banking family, one of the city's wealthiest. His mother's grandfather, and and we've discussed this before, Jonathan Horowitz was a German Jew who had come to the United States from Berlin. In 1919, Bullitt was an assistant to President Wilson at the Versailles Peace Conference. That same year, Wilson and British Prime Minister Lloyd George sent him to Russia to meet with Lenin and determine that the new Bolshevik government deserved recognition by the Allies. You know, um, Bill, interesting about Bullet and the Alger His connection. It says here in, at 1935, in the funeral of Marshal Joseph Pilsudski in Warsaw, U.S. Ambassador to Moscow William Bullet, he was Moscow ambassador in Moscow at the time was given confidential assurances to the Polish government that the U.S. would stand by Poland in the event of a Nazi invasion. Shortly after he reported back to Washington, someone in the State Department, Reed Alger Hiss, passed the information to the Kremlin, which then transmitted it to German intelligence because the Soviets had a liaison with the Germans at the time. That seems interesting that Alger Hiss would be the one to pass word to the Soviets that America is going to attack Germany if there's a war with Poland. We discussed that when we discussed Alger Hiss last year, right? We did. It just seems seems odd. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Oh, there's somebody that knows what both hands are doing, right? Bullet met with Lenin and other top Soviet leaders and upon his return urged recognition of the new regime. But he had a falling out with Wilson and left diplomatic service. In 1923, he married Louise Bryant Reed, the widow of American communist leader John Reed. In Europe, Bullock collaborated with Sigmund Freud on a psycho- psychoanalytical biography of Wilson. 
When Roosevelt became president in 1933, he brought Bullock back into diplomatic life. In November 1933, Roosevelt sent Bullock to Moscow as the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. His initial enthusiasm for the Soviet system gave way to a deep distrust of Stalin and communism. In 1936, the president transferred him to Paris. He served there as Roosevelt's key European diplomat until 1940 when Churchill's assumption of leadership in Britain and the defeat of France made his special role superfluous. In the spring of 1938, all U.S. envoys in Europe were subordinate, subordinated to Bullitt by an internal directive of the State Department. As the European situation worsened in 1939, Roosevelt often spoke with his man in Paris by telephone, sometimes daily, yet, you know, that worsening of the European situation, that's a very subjective viewpoint, right? Uh, I'm sure to Roosevelt it was bettering and not worsening, right? Sometimes daily, Roosevelt spoke to, to Bullitt in Paris, frequently giving him precisely detailed and ultra-confidential instructions on how to conduct America's foreign policy. Not even Secretary of State Cordell Hull was privy to many of the letters and communications between Bullitt and Roosevelt. So in is France, he just a, an ambassador in Paris, or is he a, a quasi-president? He's like the American president's personal valet or personal representative for all of Europe. Well, well, that's what they're saying, yes. In France, the New York Times noted Bullitt was acclaimed there as the champagne ambassador on account of the lavishness of his parties. But he was more, far more than the envoy to Paris. He was President Roosevelt's intimate advisor on European affairs with telephone access to the president at any hour. And he's a banker, and he's at least one-fourth Jewish, right? Bullard and Roosevelt were fond of each other and saw eye to eye on foreign policy issues. Both were aristocrats. How, how could a Jew be an aristocrat? Uh, arist you know, the, Greek, the, the Greek word aristos means noble, right? <laughs> interesting that you, you, you say he's Jewish here because we, we, we've established that. His mother's Louisa Horowitz. Wiki says that he was a, an outspoken anti-communist and anti-Semite in his later years. That's rather interesting. I mean, that, that's comical. So that means that he had a disagreement with several Jews over how to exploit the Goyim, so that makes him an anti-Semite. Yeah, well, for the same reason Stalin was an anti-Semite, right? Because he got rid of all his Jewish competition? That's a joke, too, right? Both were aristocrats and thorough internationalists who shared definite views on how to remake the world and a conviction that they were destined to bring about that grand reorganization. And they did. They remade the world into hell, right? Between these teammates, the Saturday Evening Post reported in March 1939, there was a close, hearty relationship and a strong temperamental affinity. The president is known to rely upon Bullitt's judgment so heavily that the ambassadors mailed and cabled reports from abroad are supplemented several times a week by a chat by transatlantic telephone, big thing in those days. In addition, Bullitt returns to the United States several times each year to take part in White House councils. <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> to the to the displeasure of the State Department, which considers him a prima donna. In the whole roster of the State Department, the president could not have found an advisor 
who would have been so responsive to his own champagne personality as Bullet. Both men, born patricians, I don't know that this language is horrible, right? Had the same basic enthusiasm for remolding society. I don't know how a Jew could be a patrician either, right? I can't figure that one out. In Europe, Bullet spoke with the voice and the authority of President Roosevelt himself. The second most important American diplomat in Europe was Joseph P. Kennedy, Roosevelt's ambassador at the court of St. James. That, that's the, the, um, the temple in London, right? Like Bullitt, he was a wealthy banker, but this Boston Catholic of Irish ancestry was otherwise a very different sort of man. Roosevelt sent Kennedy, an important Democratic Party figure and father of a future president, to Britain for purely political reasons. Roosevelt disliked and tr- distrusted Kennedy, and this sentiment grew as Kennedy opposed the president's war policies more and more vehemently. Moreover, Kennedy despised his counterpart in Paris. Kennedy disp- that, that's, both of those are to Kennedy's credit, right? In a letter to his wife, he wrote, I talk to Bullard occasionally. He is more rattle-brained than ever. His judgment is pathetic, and I am afraid of his influence on FDR because they think alike on many things. You want to pick up? The documents. Here now are extensive excerpts from the Polish documents themselves. They are given in chronological order. They are remarkably lucid for diplomatic reports and speak eloquently for themselves. On 9 February 1938, the Polish ambassador in Washington, Count Jerzy Pataki, reported to the foreign minister in Warsaw on the Jewish role in making American foreign policy. The pressure of the Jews on President Roosevelt and on the State Department is becoming ever more powerful. The Jews are right now the leaders in creating a war psychosis which would plunge the entire world into war and bring about general catastrophe. This mood is becoming more and more apparent. In their definition of democratic states, the Jews have also created real chaos. They have mixed together the idea of democracy and communism and have above all raised the banner of burning hatred against Nazism. This hatred has become a frenzy. It is propagated everywhere and by every means, in theaters, in the cinema, and in the press. The Germans are portrayed as a nation living under the arrogance of Hitler, which wants to conquer the whole world and drown all of humanity in an ocean of blood. In conversations with Jewish press representatives, I have repeatedly come up against the inexorable and convinced view that war is inevitable. The international, this international Jewry exploits every means of propaganda to oppose any tendency towards any kind of consolidation and understanding between nations. In this way, the conviction is growing steadily, but surely in public opinion here that the Germans and their satellites in the form of fascism are enemies who must be subdued by the democratic world. And it's no surprise or no shock that the Jews are seeing war as inevitable. Aren't they the ones who are making war inevitable? Absolutely. I mean, what was it that Hitler said? Once again, that conspiracy of pitiful, corrupt political creatures and greedy financial magnets made its appearance, for whom war is a welcome means to bolster business. The international Jewish poison of the peoples began to agitate against and to corrode healthy minds. Men of letters set out to portray decent men who desired peace as weaklings and traitors, to denounce opposition parties as a fifth column, in order to eliminate internal resistance to their criminal policy of war. Jews and Freemasons, armament industrialists, war profiteers, international traders and stock jobbers found political blackguards 
desperados and glory seekers who represented war as something to be yearned for and hence wished for. And of course, isn't that exactly what happened here with the Great Sedition Trials? Anybody who speaks for peace, if you're Charles Lindbergh, your baby gets kidnapped and murdered, and if you're a bricklayer in Detroit or a farmer in Kansas and you're doing translation work or you publish a newspaper that 200 people read at most, you get indicted. On 21, well, well, Hitler warned all along from 19, right from 1932, right through 1939, that the Jews were doing their best to plunge Europe into another world war. There, there's and, no doubt. And, and yet, some people have the gall to say he was a Rothschild agent. One, if there was, if he were a Rothschild agent, they wouldn't have needed a war. They would have owned Europe then, lock, stock, and barrel. And if he Absolutely. had been a Rothschild agent, why build up Germany? Why not just have the Germans wiped out in '33 with a Soviet invasion? Absolutely. He did his best to build Germany up so they could defend themselves and stand strong. Well, well, that's fools like Jim Condit that want to, and and all these other clowns that simply can't see the elephant in the living room. They simply can't see. The, the devil in the closet, they can't see the Jew as the enemy of all mankind, that they just can't make that admission. That they can't see that, um, I don't know, for some reason they're just totally blind that Germany was a good Christian nation, Adolf Hitler was a good Christian man, stood up for his people to their right of, for their right of self-determination, and, and America and England played Satan's whores and crushed them. That, that's it in a nutshell, right? We were the bad guys, and we killed the good guys. Right. And they don't want to make that admission. That They're too self-righteous to make that admission. They can't admit we were on the wrong side. And, you know, supposedly some French commanders who took part in the NATO mission in the Balkans, they've now come out saying we bombed the wrong side. And, you know, that, that takes a lot of moral courage to come out and admit that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And Jim Condit and the rest of those clowns that say that Adolf Hitler was a Rothschild agent just don't have that courage. They're all moral weaklings and cowards. On 21 November 1938, Ambassador Pataki sent a report to Warsaw which discussed in some detail a conversation between himself and Bullitt, who happened to be back in Washington. The day before yesterday, I had a long conversation with Ambassador Bullitt, who was here on vacation. He began by remarking that friendly relations existed between himself and Polish Ambassador Lukasiewicz in Paris, whose company he greatly enjoyed. Since Bullitt regularly informs President Roosevelt about the international situation in Europe, and particularly about Russia, great attention is given to his reports by President Roosevelt and the State Department. Bullitt speaks energetically and interestingly. Nonetheless, his reactions to events in Europe resembles the view of a journalist more than that of a politician. So they're basically saying that he, he has a lot of bias and he has an agenda. He's not an, a dispassionate, objective politician who's analyzing things without bias and, and logically he's a journalist who's inflamed with passion and bias. Is that how you read that, Bill? Well, well absolutely. But... but um. Well, wow. He, he's not a politician. He's a banker, and, 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 and he, he's part Jewish, and he obviously has a, a, um, a stake in the outcome of 
of the diplomatic results, right? Uh, I mean, he obviously left about wants the war. So he's there to make sure that peace cannot happen. Right. And, and Weber is assuming that he should be objective. About Germany and Chancellor Hitler, he spoke with great vehemence and strong hatred. He said that only force, and ultimately a war, would put an end to the insane future German expansionism. And I have an apology. Actually, here, these are Pataki's words, right? Pataki, the ambassador, is assuming that Bullet should be objective. I'm sorry. P- Pataki wouldn't have any reason not to assume that, because we, we can't assume that Pataki knew about Bullet's heritage, can we? No, we can't assume that, or, or really anything much about his background. He, he sees, uh, I mean, I don't know how much Pataki knew about Bullet, but, but um, he, he may have known nothing except that he's the ambassador from the United States to you France. Would, right? You would expect America to appoint a rational man who's objective. Well, well people tend to, to put their own values on others, to project and their own values on it. We do it all the time. Here, Bullet is demanding that German expansion be um, brought to a halt. Do we ever hear anybody talk about halting Israeli expansionism? Just a more of a rhetorical question. To my question, asking how he visualized this coming war, he replied that above all, the United States, France, and England must rearm tremendously in order to be in a position to oppose German power. Only then, when the moment is ripe, declared Bullet further, Will one be ready for the final decision? I asked him in what way a conflict could arise, since Germany would probably not attack England and France first. I simply could not see the connecting point in this whole combination. Bullet replied that the democratic countries absolutely needed about another two years until they were fully armed. In the meantime, Germany would probably have advanced with its expansion in an easterly direction. It would be the wish of the democratic countries that armed conflict would break out there in the east between the German Reich and Russia. As the Soviet Union's potential strength is not yet known, it might happen that Germany would have moved too far away from its base and would be condemned to wage a long and weakening war. Only then would the democratic countries attack Germany, Bullet declared, and force her to capitulate. So that's interesting. Bullet's saying that if Germany is in a war with the Soviet Union, France, Britain, and America will go to war to save the Soviet Union. I wonder how they would have sold that one to the American people. It's one thing to sell them on Poland, but another thing to say we're going to go to war to save the Soviet Union. That'd be interesting to see the greatest generation thumping their chests and proudly proclaiming we saved the Soviet Union. That's basically what they did. But at least they dress it up and say, we saved Poland. Although, of course, since Poland was handed over to Stalin, you know, they, they didn't save anything. They saved international Jewry. In reply to my question whether the United States would take part in such a war, he said, undoubtedly, yes, but only after Great Britain and France had let loose first. Feeling in the United States was no, no intense, not intense against Nazism and Hitlerism, that a psychosis already prevails today among Americans similar to that before America's declaration of war against Germany in 1917. Bullet did not give the impression of being very well informed about the situation in Eastern Europe, and he conversed in a rather superficial way. He seems to think that in 1938 the Soviet Union can actually hold its own against Germany. 
if Germany only had the focus on the Soviet Union and could concentrate all resources there instead of having to, to bail out the Italians and the Balkans and then in Greece and then in North Africa and deal with the war in the West, I don't think the Soviets would have lasted much into 1942. They, they only had about a few months of fight in them without Western help. So the West basically did save Stalin's ass, didn't it? Well, well, absolutely. There's no way that Stalin would have been able to wage that war against Germany w without the West in the war on his side. There's absolutely no way. It would have, I mean, he was launching a massive offensive. There's no doubt. Operation Barbarossa on, on a German part um, surprised Stalin and, and destroyed his chances for a massive surprise offensive against Western Europe. Yes, he was doing that. But once Barbarossa was launched, and, and once most of Stalin's vanguard was destroyed or cut off, there was no way Stalin would have won that war without the intervention of England, France, and eventually the United States on the Western Front. Uh, I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. Germany was going to destroy the Soviet Union, there is no doubt. So that's the ultimate legacy, then, of the Allied intervention in the Second World War. I, I read an article recently that said that the um, Western Allies, their victory in World War II, um, it initiated a chain of events that uh, essentially led to the downfall of our entire civilization, and that we can thank basically America and Britain for destroying the West. Well, well absolutely, because Central, well, well, first, Central Germany, and, and Germany in Central Europe, I should say, is a very important component of Western civilization, and and a cultural and intellectual fount that you know of Western civilization which was to a great deal to, to a great extent destroyed during the Second World War. England's empire dissolved after the Second World War and um the projection of English culture and civilization throughout the world had dissipated. Um America after the Second World War what was transformed from a um, and basically a reflection of Western European values into a, a, um, a projection of Jewish pop culture, and and what we we haven't espoused our own civilization's values in fifty years now. I, I mean, it, it's rock and roll and 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 beatnik druggy. It, it's Jewish pop culture today. It, it's not, forget it. Now, now it's Mystery Babylon, right? Now, now it's race mixing and, and even worse. But I'm, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s. And, and yet, you know, subsequent to the war years, America lost any, um, seemed to, through the Jewish media, lose any connection that it had to, to the, the pillars of Western civilization in the arts and music. And, and all of that was substituted with Jewish pop culture. All these soldiers who had the balls to hit the beach at Normandy and charge the German machine guns in German positions and fight the Germans, you know, for over a year, they just came back home and kind of sat around and did nothing while their daughters went off and became race mixers and their sons became hippies. So, I mean, how much courage did they have at the end of the day? Well, well Absolutely. Okay, we're going to end this program here, and we'll pick up here um, next week. All right. So this will be probably, what, two more parts, you're thinking? Yes, it, it'll probably take two more parts. I, I want to thank everybody for listening. We'll be here next week with the continuation 
of, of this Mark Weber article, President Roosevelt's campaign to incite, incite war in Europe, the secret Polish documents, and, and the meat of the article is coming. And, and hopefully we'll get into that next week. But we're still basically building up the introduction to these papers, right? Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. I'll be here next week. Praise Yahweh.